This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. Being sent to prison for life or being sent to a psychiatric hospital is seen as like the end of it. But people's lives carry on and people live restricted lives, but lives just just like the rest of us. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. In February of 1992, a 22-year-old walked into a police station in Florida and confessed that he had shot and killed his parents. He had claimed that he was possessed by the devil at the time. He was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia and ruled not criminally responsible for the murders on the grounds of insanity. But after the trial, where do the criminally insane end up? Nonfiction author and psychoanalyst Makita Brotman unravels the story at the center of her book, Couple Found Slain. Well, let's talk about the book. First, start with the title and how did you find this story? Well, I was working in a, a forensic psychiatric hospital in Maryland and I was I was volunteering there running a, a reading group and I hadn't thought about writing um, about any of the patients, but I became, I mean, the patients were really articulate and really interesting. And eventually I got to know some of the stories and there was a patient called Brian Bechtel and I found out that he'd been in the hospital for, at that time, I think it was 27 years and the average stay is like six years. So it was, you know, much, much longer than any of the other patients, which really surprised me because he was really articulate and interesting and seemed completely stable. So I talked to him, gradually got to know him better and better. And finally, he told me his story. And I found it so fascinating that I asked him if he'd be interested in me writing about it. And he agreed. So that's how things started. Will you tell me specifically what your job was in this time period where you knew Brian? What exactly on a day-to-day basis did you do in this facility? I think I was on sabbatical from my academic job. So I wanted to do some voluntary work and I started to work in a prison where I was um, running a reading group there too with a group of prisoners. And the psychiatric hospital was in very close to the prison too. And so I talked to the you know, the CEO and the head psychiatrist there. And so I started this group once a week. 
even though I'm a psychoanalyst, this was a completely non-clinical group. It was voluntary and I wasn't taking any notes or anything, although the patients often didn't seem to believe me. And it was for mostly high-functioning patients and, I, and they could elect to get in the group, join the group. And so there were usually about, I actually had two groups in the end of about 10 patients in each group. And we would usually read short stories and I would give them the stories to read in between classes. And then we would meet and discuss the stories in the meeting. And it would usually lead to other kinds of general conversations. But I was really interested in getting the um, perspective on the stories and to think about, you know, how fiction relates to real life and how you can kind of empathize with fictional characters. And, and then just like, you know, some kind of enjoyment because there really wasn't very much to do there. Before we learn about Brian and his time in the facility that we're talking about. Let's talk about what actually happened and what he was convicted of. So where does that story make sense? Is it the environment that Brian grew up in and what his parents were like and who they were? So Couple Found Slain is about a man named Brian Bechtold who in 1992 in Hillensdale, Maryland, at the age of 22, murdered his parents. And he was suffering at that time from paranoid schizophrenia, which is partly inherited. He had mental illness in the family. And he believes both of his parents were mentally ill, particularly his father, who was not diagnosed. But as he grew older, as he hit his teenage years, he became incredibly paranoid and delusional and couldn't really function, found himself getting thrown out of college, losing his friends, spending most of the time with his dogs. He was institutionalized a number of times as he was growing up for, you know, drinking and smoking pot. And I mean, without being aware of it, he was just becoming more and more detached from the everyday world. And that's the age at which most people who suffer from schizophrenia are, are going to have a psychotic break if they do. And Brian had not been on any medication or anything. He didn't perceive himself as being mentally ill. He believed that the house was under attack from outsiders. He believed he saw things in the yard. He believed that there was um, a devil in the attic recording all kinds of things that he said. So he was really suffering from pretty typical paranoid delusions. And this is what led him one day to commit this horrible act. His parents had been abusive, not sexually abusive, but physically and emotionally um, throughout his life, violent and oppressive. And, and then after the murders, he went on the run for a couple of weeks and then he turned himself in. Was the abuse independently verified? His parents were Dorothy and George Bechtold. So were there reports or did any of this come out in the trial, this history of abuse with the parents? There were lots of documents of Brian being put into sort of teenage psychiatric hospitals and then being released by his mother against the advice of the doctors. Mm. For most of the information about Brian's childhood, I talked to his sister, Kathy, and she you know, verified everything that Brian said. And and his other siblings don't speak to him. Kathy's the only one that does. So as much as I could verify it, um, she supported everything that Brian said. Okay. So he is obviously suffering from schizophrenia. Does anybody recognize this? I know he's in and out of facilities. Is that when he is given the diagnosis is when he's in his teenage years? No, he's not diagnosed until he until after the crime. Hmm. And of course, you know, it's an absolutely horrifying crime and no amount of abuse can can justify what he did. And he certainly, you know, had ordinary difficulties with his parents, probably beyond what most teenagers have, but without his his delusions and schizophrenia, you know, he saw his parents as not who they were, as uh, as zombies, as enemies. So after the crime, he was seen by a psychiatrist and that's when he got the diagnosis. 
What exactly is the crime? What happens during these murders? And then how is he caught? Does he just turn himself in? What happens? Brian had, he was so delusional that he had, and paranoid, he had been keeping a gun, like constantly walking around the house with a gun, which kind of makes me wonder what his parents thought was going on. Half the year, his parents were in Florida without him. So I'm not sure if they quite fully understood the severity of his mental illness, but they thought that he was paranoid about outsiders attacking the house. And he was even keeping the gun, like he even took into the shower with him. And so it seems to me that the kind of situation was was ready for something terrible to happen. He hadn't been able to sleep for weeks. He managed, one morning he was just managing to fall asleep. He heard his father shouting and that was it. He took his gun and went downstairs and shot them. And he says afterwards, he he didn't really understand that it had happened. He felt like it was a dream or something he'd seen on television. He wasn't quite sure that he'd actually done it. After the murders, he took the family car, took his dog. He was going to escape to Mexico, but he just ended up kind of driving at random around the US, having kind of strange experiences, picking up hitchhikers who believed that there were animals all over the road that he'd hit with the car. He had what he believed was a spiritual revelation. He listened to a preacher on the radio. He started reading a Bible. He went to a campground in a small town on the Gulf of Mexico, believed that he heard an angel telling him to turn himself in, that he'd been possessed by the devil. And and so that's what he did. He went to a local police station and turned himself in. So he had shot his parents and who had found them? Was it the sister or one of the siblings that had discovered them? None of the other siblings were living at home. And Brian was significantly younger than all the other siblings. So they were scattered around the country. None of them even lived locally. And he had no relatives living locally. The family was kind of isolated from the community, actually. When Brian was arrested in in the Gulf of Mexico, he assumed that his parents had been found long ago. But actually, the police there called the police in Maryland, asked them to do a wellness check, and the parents hadn't, hadn't been found. You know, they were still in the house, and they'd been dead for over a week. So... They weren't found until um, until Brian confessed. What's interesting about this case is, you know, I've covered other stories about people suffering from schizophrenia. One story in particular from 1935 of a young man who was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And, you know, the idea was that when I spoke to several forensic psychologists, they said, you know, covering up is not the thing that people who suffer from schizophrenia and commit a crime are doing. This seems contradictory to that. He seems like he's on the run, but he's also having delusions at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think that he, you know, he realized he'd done this terrible, terrible thing, probably felt responsible that he was going to go to prison, perhaps was thinking of suicide and just wanted to get out of the scene, out of the situation. So I don't think he actually saw it as covering up. I think he was very confused about what was actually going on. Mm-hmm. And later he came to see it in terms of like the forces of good versus the force of evil battling over his soul. Really fight or flight is what it sounds like that he was doing. It's not that he was willing to sit there because he didn't understand there were consequences. It was just like his instinct was to go because something traumatic happened. Right. And I think he didn't want to, you know, to stay in that scene, in that scene and and see what had happened. So tell me what happens when his parents are discovered. How does the rest of this unfold until we get to the trial or if there is a trial? Well, at first, the police didn't believe him. So when it turned out that his parents were actually dead, he was arrested and returned home. And then he was hospitalized in Maryland. Two of his sisters came to support him. And he was given um, an attorney. Well, they hired an attorney, actually. And the attorney interviewed him and said it was very, very clear that he was not in his right mind. 
So they decided to plead not criminally responsible, which is like the Maryland equivalent of the what used to be called the insanity defense, which is actually very, very rarely used successfully. And so in Brian's case, he waived trial. He wasn't considered fit to stand trial. And he was taken to various facilities. And finally, he ended up in Clifton Perkins, which is a forensic psychiatric facility where most of the patients are either, so they've all committed a crime, they're either considered incompetent to stand trial, so they're waiting for their sanity to be restored to the extent that they can stand trial, or they're like Brian, who's been found not criminal responsible, so they're kind of there for the long haul until the psychiatrists decide that he's competent to be released. When we talk about him not competent to stand trial, does the parents' past abuse come into play at all, or is it strictly based on his diagnosis of schizophrenia? It's completely based on his diagnosis. I mean, he has plenty of interviews with the psychiatrist, but they're really about his his current state of mind, his ability to understand what's going on, his thought content and that kind of thing. He told me that he believes that his parents were mentally ill and and had been for a long time. And I assume that he discussed this with the psychiatrist too, but it really was mostly about, not about the past and how that might have contributed except genetically. So there's no question of like, you know, were his parents to blame or did he have a right to do this or anything like that? I mean, that was not considered. So he is considered not competent to stand trial. Do we have a reaction at all from, I know that you said he is estranged from several of his siblings except for one sister, Is there a point where members of his family or his parents, friends, or anybody in the community is saying, this is not right. This guy should go to jail for gunning down his parents, because I know that is the reaction of family members in similar situations. Sure. He has four siblings, one of whom is now deceased, and two of them, his brother and one of his sisters, were completely in favor of him going to prison. They felt that he Regardless of his mental state, what he'd done was serious enough that there was no question of anything but him taking responsibility. And they pushed for that. You know, they didn't want to help pay his lawyer. They didn't want to do anything to help him. On his side, he had his two other sisters and an uncle, but no other, none of the other extended family members got involved. I mean, this becomes so complicated because you have two people who are dead who, yes, were abusive, but we set that aside if we're just talking about legal things. Two people who are dead, somebody who has confessed, somebody who is obviously suffering from a very severe mental illness. But now, are we looking at any possibility that Brian could be rehabilitated and released? Or where do we stand with him at this point before we start talking about the actual facility and what happens? Yes, the the average stay in a in that particular facility is six years, and you know rehabilitation is the goal, and that often takes place with the aid of a lot of medication. And many of these patients who are released will be rehabilitated, perhaps into a assisted living facility, and they'll be on medication for the rest of their lives. You know, Brian's been in there for a really long time, much longer than many of the other patients. So yes, theoretically, he could have been rehabilitated and released as as many other patients are. And the short average length of time spent in the hospital is one of the reasons why there's so much controversy about the insanity defense and why so many people are against it, because so many people are released in what appears to be a very short amount of time and certainly much shorter than if they had been put in prison for the same crime. What do studies show about the instances of repeat offending 
after people have been released who have committed violent crimes and have been rehabilitated. I'm assuming there's studies that conclude whether or not this works or not, or is it really individual basis? You know, each state is different because each state facility has different kind of norms and, and levels about what, what's how long people stay and, and when they're allowed out. I think the rate of recidivism is it's a little higher than prisoners, but not very much. But when there are cases of repeat of offenses, they usually get enormous amounts of publicity because, you know, this is someone who's previously already committed a crime and now has been released into the community. So a lot of people think it seems as though people with mental illness who've done terrible things are being released when they're not ready. But in fact, it's just that their crimes get so much more publicity than those of, say, prisoners who are recidivists. You know, most books about true crime end with the end of the crime and the person, the offender goes off and he's been convicted or sent to a facility. And that's sort of the end of it. And we're focusing on the victims primarily. And in this case, you really are focusing on Brian because of what happens after he is in the facility. So what are his first years like there? Brian's first years. During his first years, he was trying really hard. He was jumping through all the hoops. He was going to all the therapy sessions. He was taking the medication. He believed that he could be out in, you know, five or six years. He still had visits. So his life was, you know, he's not completely isolated in the hospital. He made friends with some of the other patients. He, as I said, you know, he followed all the rules and did everything possible to facilitate his release. What was the facility like? I mean, would you consider this a high quality facility? I don't really have anything to compare it to, but it seems to me that there's very little to do for the patients. And partly this is because of government funding restrictions and all kinds of things. But it seems that most of the patients, I mean, there's a chapel, there's a gym, but mostly it's just sitting and watching television. And most patients are very severely medicated. And the level of mental illness goes from like completely catatonic to apparently perfectly functional like Brian. They can have jobs like working as a janitor or working in the kitchen. And then there are people like me who are volunteers who came in to offer groups and activities. I think people seem to assume that most of the psychiatrists who work in a state facility are the least prestigious. In my experience, a lot of the psychiatrists there are not the best. And I think working in a facility like that, psychiatrists are usually very, their term there is usually very short-lived. So the patients seem to get handed on to one psychiatrist after another. Of course, the restrictions on what they're allowed to have and what they're allowed to do are very intense and extreme. And then the thing that Brian found worst of all was the medication. The medication that he was given, he eventually resisted taking it. It made him incontinent and impotent. And eventually he felt that that was unacceptable. So is this the maximum security facility that he was in? Is this where he has spent his whole time since the murders? This interview comes at a really interesting time, actually, because on the 15th of May, he was due to go back to, he's been there 31 years, I think. He was due to have another trial in an attempt to get released, which patients have the opportunity to do every every couple of years. He was going to have a public defender. He'd lined up a psychiatrist to testify in his favor. I was going to speak. His sister was going to speak. And on the Friday before, Perkins facility said they were not going to have the trial and they were not going to contest it. And they were going to allow him to be released. It's also not like he can walk out of the doors. You know, he'd be there another six months at least. And then he'll be moved to a regional hospital, which is a little 
less secure, and then to a sort of, you know, transitional facility. So even though he'll be getting out of Perkins, it's not like he's going to, you know, immediately like be able to get a job and live an ordinary life. And just from being there for so long, you know, it's going to be very difficult for him to adjust to the community. He hasn't like, he's never been online, for example. He's never, you know, used an iPhone. I mean, things have really changed a lot since, uh, since the time when he went to prison. So it's just partly getting used to the life outside and learning how to, how to live as an ordinary citizen. Do you not have any concern about him being released? Are we saying we trust the evaluators here and as much as you can say, I feel like he's ready and stable, that he is? I haven't seen him on a day-to-day basis, but I've known him for 10 years and I have spent a lot of time interviewing him for this book and I visited him a lot in the facility and I've spoken to his family members. You know, the conversations I have with him are no different from the conversations I'd have with anyone else. I mean, he's pissed off about the way he's treated, but that's inevitable. I think anyone would be. I think he's completely rational about that. He would have to be on medication probably for the rest of his life, but hopefully not such strong antipsychotics. And he'll be in contact with a psychiatrist and he'll have, you know, a social worker and a therapist and he won't be completely isolated. Is anyone in his family opposed to this happening? The siblings that were opposed to him going to Perkins will be opposed to it. I'm sure they haven't learned that yet. They're not in touch with him, but I'm sure they will be. Let's go back and talk about his time at Perkins because that's what a lot of the book is about. What were the positives aside from his journey with medication? And it sounds like maybe they've sort of sorted it out and getting it right. Have there been other positives to being there besides, of course, not being in prison? The positives about being in Perkins rather than prison are, one, that for most people at least, they have a a determinist time there. They'll be released at some point, which many people in prison won't be. You're also allowed to receive visitors far more regularly than you are in prison. And you're actually allowed to hug, kiss them, you know, to touch. Um, You're guarded all the time, but there's no, there's no barrier between you. Um, There's no restrictions on how many people can come. Once a year, there's a Christmas party and there's also a summer picnic, which I have attended where families and patients are all together and the staff members and you can bring gifts and um, there are picnics. And part of being in the hospital rather than prison is just kind of getting to know other people in the same situation who have also been through the system. And Brian found, especially on certain wards, a kind of esprit de corps and a real kind of camaraderie. And he's made some really great friends there who've been released and he's still in touch with. And then because people are from so many different walks of life, there isn't the gang activity that there is in prisons. It's a lot safer than it is in prisons. This is a hospital as well. You know, it's not seen as a place for punishment. These are patients, you know, they're not given a number, they're addressed by their names. And theoretically, at least, they're being treated and helped It's not supposed to be a kind of punitive place. It's a place where staff members are supposed to be helping you. Well, you say supposed to be. And Brian did not have, it doesn't sound like to me, the type of experience that we would hope somebody who needs help with a mental illness would have. What was this experience like sort of from the beginning for him? I know we said boredom, but then things seemed to devolve for him. One of the things that I wanted to do with this book was to show that once a perpetrator 
of a crime disappears from the scene of traditional true crime, their lives are still very eventful. And when I used to think about the death penalty, I used to think, well, really the death penalty is not so bad because the alternative is like life in solitary confinement or life in prison. But now I've realized that people can get used to anything and people can develop a life for themselves. You know, people who are wheelchair bound, of course, they, they get used to it. People get used to all kinds of terrible circumstances that we can't imagine being in. And eventually, when you've been there, say, more than 10 years, I think you start to forget what ordinary life was like when you were on the outside. And that becomes your life in the prison or in the hospital becomes your everyday life, your routine. And you're not always thinking about the outside and, and when you're going to be released or seeing your friends and family and so on. So since this is what made me so interested in writing about Brian's story is that since he's been in the hospital, he's had cancer and recovered from it. He's tried to escape. He's been shot by the police. He's had a psychiatrist who turned out to be criminally insane, witnessed all kinds of things. He's been, you know, drugged beyond recognition and his life has been really eventful. Like I said, I've listed some of the positive things, but mostly it's been horrible for him. And Brian himself sees it as punishment. He believes that the hospital are punishing him because he did try to escape for a day and um, disagrees with his psychiatrist and has not accepted the routine. He believes that he's been punished for fighting back against the hospital. Tell me how this story unfolds. How do things go? He arrives. Do his issues really start with the medication that he's put on medication he doesn't like? And then how do things proceed? In the book, I refer to this documentary that was made in the hospital called Untying the Straight Jacket. It was made in 1997, and it's one of those like, A&E investigates with Bill Curtis, and they're investigating the inside of the psychiatric hospitals, and they film Clifton Perkins, and Brian is one of the main patients in the documentary. Um, he's You can actually find it if you Google Untying the Straight Jacket. He's, he gets a lot of camera time, and he's contrasted with some of the other patients who are seen as extremely mentally ill. Brian is seen as a very high-functioning patient who may get out soon. He keeps fit. He does exercises. He plays games. He socializes with the other patients. He's seen as a very progressive case. And ironically, everyone else in that documentary has been released um, and Brian's still there. I mean, after taking medication that has completely rendered him um, incapable, he has stopped taking it. He's resisted taking it. He's refused to to join in activities that he doesn't feel are appropriate. He, according to psychiatrists, keeps secrets from them. And he has tried at every opportunity to fight against the hospital, which I feel is not evidence of any kind of pathological symptoms or insanity. And of course, you know, he, he's been through different levels and He's had day passes where he's allowed to go out in the company of his sister and he's been on more restrictive circumstances where he's actually been in restraints. And so he's been sort of up and down between different levels. And that's one of the things that's most distressing to him because he often feels that like instead of it being sort of progress, sort of going up a ladder towards release, it's going up and down, up and down all the time, which again is one of the things I wanted to emphasize in the book that most true crime books have this kind of trajectory of progress towards, you know, the investigation and the denouement and the capturing of the criminal and the unfolding of the case with some kind of coherent ending or closure. And in fact, you know, when I wrote this book, there isn't really an ending. It's just kind of the same sort of bureaucratic confusion and no end in sight for Brian and the same sort of instability in the hospital and the lack of clarity. And 
there might have been a, a happier ending if I sort of stopped the story earlier, but I think whether or not there's closure depends on where you end the story. What are the ways that he can fight against the hospital while he's there? I know you said refusing to do activities and things like that. Does he have that sort of agency in a facility like that? Or does he actually have to physically stop himself from doing anything? At first, he was like finding ways not to take the medication, like hiding it in his mouth. And eventually, if a patient refuses to take medication, he can be sent to a panel of psychiatrists who can decide that they can force him to take medication. And even then, he can be taken to court and made to take medication, which in the most extreme case would be being held down and given an injection. And so he has resisted to a certain degree, but there's only a certain ways that you can resist. The way Brian sees it is like a question of kind of learning the hospital's language and the hospital's jargon and knowing what to say to psychiatrists and what to conceal from them. And what's frustrating is that it doesn't really work. I mean, for example, Brian has told me that he's very religious and religion has been a great help to him throughout his time at the hospital. It's a religious belief he doesn't really talk about. He didn't really talk about it to me either because it's a very kind of extreme sort of um, evangelism. And when he would talk about that to the doctors, they would see it as, you know, religiosity is a symptom of schizophrenia. So they would see it as sort of this kind of apocalyptic belief that, that was another symptom of his mental illness. Mm. So he stopped talking about it. And then it was seen as like withholding information. So whether you go along with the regime or whether you resist, it's often seen as symptomatic. And that's that's one of the reasons why some of the patients told me that they would rather be in prison. In fact, some of them actually do things to get sent to prison is because in prison, you do have that sense of agency. You know, you can like not go to breakfast and that's your choice. It's not like written down as a symptom that, you know, didn't go to breakfast or you can, um, you know, you can choose to go in the yard. You cannot go in the yard. It's not anything that you have to go along with. It's people aren't taking notes and observing your behavior all the time. In fact, quite the opposite. I mean, you're kind of ignored most of the time unless you do something dangerous. So, And also, I mean, for patients like Brian, one of the things he thought was a real curse was the idea of hope, that he has hope that he's going to be released and then that hope loses. And hope became a horrible thing for him in the end. He wished he could get rid of it. And in prison, if you're, you know, if you have life without parole, even if you have a death sentence, you know what's going to happen. There isn't that constant possibility of, of release. If you know you have a 20-year sentence or a 30-year sentence, you know when you're coming to the end. And that's not the same with the patients in, in Perkins like Brian. Let's talk about some of the things that he has seen that he was not involved with. It sounds like Perkins had some violence there that he witnessed, which I'm sure was traumatizing for him also. What was he seeing that was so disturbing to him? He told me that it's not so bad now. I mean, the violence has decreased. They've, they've made changes in staff and added more guards and so on. But he has seen patient-on-patient -patient violence. But he said that the most more disturbing than that is violence from the guards because they're so bored. They have nothing to do. They're not supposed to be reading or looking at the cell phones. They're supposed to kind of sit looking at patients. And according to Brian, it's a very lowly job. And there's really not very much of a a distinction between the patients and the guards. And so to reinforce the, the hierarchy and their difference from the patients, the guards, you know, will tease the patients or make fun of them, just basically a kind of general belittling. But in terms of actual violence, while Brian's been there, there's been three patient-on-patient -patient murders. Mm. And then 
there was also this psychiatrist who was turned out to be clinically insane and was stalking the state's attorney. Brian didn't witness any of the murders. They took place in people's rooms. Mm-hmm. But he certainly witnessed the aftermath. And I think the murders are important because they sort of highlight what's going on in the facility and the kinds of things that, that go on in secret. There's often very little kind of government oversight of these facilities. That's the reason why patients like Brian can be kept there for so long. You know, there's no kind of board of review that looks how long someone's been sent there if they don't have family and support systems. So I think the murders are important for kind of highlighting this. And of course, there was lots of um, kind of outrage in the newspapers and staff were protesting that their jobs were too dangerous and that there was not enough government support. So what Brian said about the the murders, you know, they weren't really as um, as traumatizing as just like the kind of day-to-day, like grinding down of, of your sense of self and sense of hope. And some people talk about slow violence in the sense that, you know, this is not a sudden act of violence, but violence that's associated with a bureaucracy or with a, a system that can perpetuate a kind of violence by just completely grinding someone down. He thinks the hospital has got better over the last like 10 years since the murders. You know, I don't know if he's the most reliable judge, but he's seen it as a, not even the same level of dysfunction, but sort of ups and downs, but dysfunctional all along. Tell me about his escape. Tell me the story of that. What happens that day? He said he wanted to get sent to prison for the reasons that I said. He didn't want to be drugged anymore. So he'd been secreting his medication and not taking it. He was looking for an opportunity to escape. He managed to, at one point, take a strut from an ironing board. He concealed it in the ceiling of his cell. He planned it out for a long time. When the opportunity came, he used the strut to take a guard hostage. The guard led him out of the hospital, got out of the front doors. He didn't get very far. I mean, he got maybe a mile or so down the road and he was shot by the police. He says that he wanted to be killed or sent to prison. The idea of being sent back to Perkins, he didn't believe it was possible, but that's what happened. But he was, uh, you know, he was in hospital for a while. He was quite severely injured in his stomach. So it wasn't like a really exciting, when people talk about escaping from a, a mental hospital, it wasn't like climbing down a window or anything like that. Although I guess taking a hostage is pretty serious. What has changed, did he say to you, since after he escaped? Well, not for a long time. Years later, he he did something very similar. He attacked a social worker and was put in isolation and was medicated. I think what's difficult for people perhaps to understand will be, you know, you hear about these two incidences, right? So there's taking the guard hostage. He's not taking his medicine because he hates it. And then later on attacking a social worker. Then that makes me think, well, how do we know if he is released in the next six months to a year how do we know he's he's not going to feel like that again about his medicine or something is not going to happen to trigger something? Because we've had two violent things happen while at the facility. Right. But the last one, you know, it hasn't been for at least 15 years. And obviously this is a simplification, but we've all misbehaved, perhaps not committed acts of violence, but done things in the past that we we regret and wouldn't do again, even in similar circumstances. And I also think that he was rebelling against what he saw as forced medication. He still believes that he's over-medicated, but the medication hasn't been as, as bad as it was. I think one of the big differences is he'll get psychiatrists that he likes who actually treat him as, a, as an equal, but as an individual that he'll have a bond with. 
And when he's working with a psychiatrist that he likes and that he finds helpful, he'll be stable for, you know, for all that time. It's when he changes psychiatrist or when he gets a psychiatrist who he feels doesn't know him. This is one of the things that really angers him is that a new psychiatrist will simply copy over the diagnosis from the previous psychiatrist. They won't attempt to reevaluate him or find a new diagnosis. They'll just, you know, take for granted everything that's in the files is correct and continue on that diagnosis when he feels that he's not been schizophrenic for a long time and he might qualify for other diagnoses. But the idea that the psychiatrists are incredibly overworked, they have an enormous number of patients, they don't have time to follow each one individual and see their day-to-day changes. So that's one of the things that has been really difficult for him. But then he has had psychiatrists who he's really got along with, that he likes. He likes their attitude. He likes their relationship with the patients. I mean, that's the thing that really makes the difference is seeing authority, not as this kind of hostile bureaucracy, but as composed of individuals like him who have ups and downs, who have difficulties with the system like he does, who have good days and bad days, who are not a faceless bureaucracy. What are the safeguards, if any, that are put into place when he is released? I know you said he's assigned a psychiatrist. How can they check to see if he's taken his medication? I mean, how do we know he's staying on the right track once he's out? There is a psychiatrist, I mentioned him in the book, who has evaluated him five times and found him ready to be released each time. And there will be all these safeguards in place, like he'll be in a facility, you know, like a kind of halfway house where there'll be staff living in the facility. And first of all, he'll be accompanied whenever he tries to do anything and he'll be helped in getting employment and he will be regularly given medication. And a lot of medication today can be given in like a a shot, like a depot shot that kind of releases the medication gradually over a month. So it's not always a question of like taking your medication every day. You can go to the doctor and the doctor gives you the shot, then it's out of your hands, you know, it's released over your body. But I think what's most important to me and makes me most optimistic is the fact that he really wants to do well. You know, he really wants to get a job. He wants to be in a relationship. He wants to show society that he's um, an ordinary individual who can live amongst others. He does not want to be seen as a, a mental patient. He doesn't want people to know about his crime. And I think that that desire goes a long way. I mean, there are people who are released who, who don't want that, who want to kind of show their importance or regain their standing in the community. And I think Brian's sort of humility and understanding that he'll be just an ordinary person is really important to him. I mean, he's been on trips on the outside. In fact, his sister will come down and take him and he can sometimes stay overnight. And most of the time, he'll just like want to go to Walmart or want to go to a fast food place. You know, he won't want to go to a movie or anything really exciting. He just wants to see ordinary life to live like an ordinary person. He's not, he doesn't have grand ambitions or anything. What is the message? Do you think of your book? What are you hoping to get across by writing this book? I don't think I have, I don't really have a message about Brian or about the mental health system. What I wanted to do is to tell his story, partly because since HIPAA regulations, there aren't really opportunities. There's no group therapy where people can like talk about their past. So much of that is confidential. So he wanted an opportunity to tell his story and also to show, I wanted to show the traditional conventions of true crime, like the binaries of the good people and the evil people, or the cops and the wrongdoers, or even the traditional kind of trajectory or the idea of perpetrator and victim. 
these are very complicated. So I wanted to write a different kind of true crime story that starts where most others end. And I didn't want to downplay the crime, but I also wanted to show that the crime is is not the ending. It can be the beginning. And to show that you know, most of the actual events of the story are not dramatic. They're not really exciting. They're kind of the ordinary daily life of someone who's who's in really difficult circumstances. You know, whether this is prison or a psychiatric hospital or the way that the victim's life goes on, things don't kind of come to a, a dramatic climax and stories are long and complicated. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Christina Chamberlain. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.